This is an AMI podcast. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Good morning. It's Friday, January the 12th, 2024. Welcome to Now with Dave Brown, coming to you on AMI-tv. I'm Dave Brown. Let's hit the horns and go. Coming up on the show today, the news panel gets back together. Michelle McQuig, Joy Gupta, and I discuss some of the top stories of the week, including British Columbia phasing out pap tests in favor of mail-in kits collected by patients. How do you feel about provinces asking residents to engage in self-screening? Montreal's Olympic Stadium needs $1 billion in repairs. Is it maybe time to tear down the great white whale of the East End of Montreal? And an amateur soccer association in Quebec will equip referees with body cameras to prevent abuse from parents, coaches, and players. Reasonable precautionary move or a sign of growing uncivil times. All that and more coming your way over the course of the next couple of hours. But let's begin the show with the top story of the day. Meta is offering $51 million to settle a class action lawsuit in four Canadian provinces. Lisa Laporte explains. The legal action filed by a BC woman claimed her image and those of others were used without their knowledge in Facebook's sponsored stories advertising program that's no longer operational. In a statement, the court-appointed administrator handling the proposed settlement says the agreement needs to be approved by a BC Supreme Court judge in March. The lawsuit was expanded outside of BC in 2019 to include residents of Saskatchewan, Manitoba and Newfoundland and Labrador. Labrador. Lawyers estimate 4.3 million people who had their real name or photo used in a sponsored story could qualify as part of the Canadian settlement. Lisa Laporte, the Canadian Press. And a couple of notable economic stories to highlight out of the United States that will have some impact on the Canadian economic picture. U.S. consumer prices accelerated in December, higher housing costs and food were the key drivers. Reporter Alexis Christophorus dives a bit deeper into the food numbers. We're still paying more for most food items. Look, cereal prices have come down uh, quite a bit over the past few months, but we are still paying more for meat, poultry, eggs, fish. And we did see strong demand during the holidays for a, a number of different goods and services, and that too fueled inflation. And on the flip side, U.S. mortgage rates are on the rise again. Jackie Quinn crunches those numbers. For the second straight week, Freddie Mac reports mortgage rates rose now at 6.66% on average for a 30-year fixed rate loan. It's the highest level in four weeks after prices started declining in late October based on the 10-year Treasury yield. Higher rates have crushed homebuyers' purchasing power at a time when home prices have been rising and homeowners are still hanging on to their existing properties, which were likely financed at considerably 
slightly lower rates. Two years ago, the average mortgage rate was 3.45%. I'm Jackie Quinn. And if you want a little more perspective on the murky situation around financial institutions moving interest rates before central banks even make announcements, check out Wednesday's podcast when certified financial planner Ryan Chin dropped by to offer a little bit of perspective on some of the confusion around rates and the complicated, precarious economic picture. Coming back to Canada, Canadians are stressing about how much their cell phone plans cost. Michelle Zadikian files this report with a few solutions. Consumer advocate Mohamed Halabi says figuring out what you need is the first step to solving that dilemma and ensuring you don't overpay for extras. His company helps customers negotiate with providers and he says a smaller carrier could be a good fit for somebody who wants the lowest price available. He says the best time to shop for cheap plans is in the final two months of the year ahead of the holiday season. Meanwhile, David Soberman, a University of Toronto marketing professor, says one advantage of going with a big carrier like like Rogers, Telus, or Bell, is being able to bundle services for a lower cost. Michelle Zedekian, The Canadian Press. Keep that story in mind because that's going to relate to the daily poll. At Accessible Media on X, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook, before you get today's poll, let's get to yesterday's results. Several provinces are experiencing significant overcrowding in hospitals and emergency rooms. You were asked what is your biggest concern with the Canadian healthcare system. 34% of you said lack of staff, 66% of you said overcrowding, nobody voted for surgical backlogs. Over on Facebook, Brogan writes in, access to quality and timely care. Ashley comments, underpaid staff, that's a great thought by Ashley there. Tony writes in, access to care, accessibility in care. As a person who is hard of hearing, I often have communication barriers with hospital staff. Pearly Pigtails chimes in, no primary health provider, nurse practitioner or pharmacist for seven years now. It's a problem. Crafton Deborah says, pretty much lack of everything, but mostly doctors accepting new patients. Thank you to everybody who got involved in that. Love seeing these consistent takes by all y'all on social media. Keep those opinions coming at Accessible Media on X, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. Today's topic is all about phone plans. And you heard Michelle Zedekian talking about, ah, oh, some solutions here about uh, switching phone companies if you want a lower bill. So the question is this, would you switch companies to get a cheaper cell phone plan, yes or no? Alex Smythe, this one hit me right in the feels this morning because I had a pretty enraging conversation with a customer service representative of my phone company that will remain nameless uh, this morning uh, when I was being advertised a price on my customer profile, but then not being offered it when I actually called to switch my plan. I said, send me to retention, but then I was so angry, I just hung up the phone and I now go back to square one. Let me guess, that price was only for new customers and not for existing customers, Dave, uh, because that's you, often how those types of prices. Your instincts are correct. Yeah, yeah, and I that's the thing I never understand. We value getting more customers. We don't care once we have the customers. We don't want to retain people because we'll just get uh, uh, more more people on the plans and that's how we generate our money. That's always something that's driven me kind of so frustrated and, and mad and angry about the situation because I, I've oftentimes, it's like, look, whenever my phone plan is up, you see all these like great prices and stuff like that. And it's like, oh no, it's not for me. 
What, what do you mean I don't qualify? Um, so <laughs> don't show I, it to I, me. I, don't show it to me if exactly, I don't qualify. Exactly. So what I've started doing in the last few phones that I've actually uh, gotten, I've gone to a kind of a broad um, provider. So something like a Costco or a Best Buy mobile. They're not associated with any one provider, but oftentimes they can actually provide their own rate for a monthly plan. So the price that they will offer you, it's usually better than what the other major carriers can provide. So that is like a little kind of uh, sneak, uh, mm. I guess, hint mm. or, or suggestion to, to look at because they can see all the prices of all the different carriers and then you can compare in one spot instead of going to the carrier directly here, or carrier directly there. It's one-stop shopping. Alex, you're working under a big assumption here though, and that's that I am not lazy and I am extremely lazy. And as you know, right. paperwork is one of my greatest fears and switching yeah. phone companies involves paperwork. But Laura, I wonder if it's time for me to be an adult, put on my adult pants and say, I'm just gonna switch my phone carrier every year and get the best price. Yeah, maybe. I mean, a big question for me with that would be, could you port your number over? Because uh, I've had the same, yeah, you can uh, same number for ages. And I know, like, sometimes they say you can, sometimes they say you can't, depending on the company. But, um, you know, I find this question a little tough to answer. So it's sort of yes with a caveat. So, um, you know, I've been with TELUS now for a couple of years, and they have an accessibility discount that you uh, can qualify for as a person with a disability if you meet certain criteria. So if folks don't know about that, they should look into it. But for me, it kind of brings my cost in line more with what I would pay with a discount carrier. It's still a little bit more expensive, but I've found that the customer service experiences and like the platform experience has been pretty good. And as part of a work co-op that I did uh, maybe two years ago, I had the opportunity to kind of research cell phone plans and call a lot of different companies and look at their websites. And you know, some, especially discount carriers, it was extremely frustrating to try and navigate their platforms and to try and get a hold of an actual agent. So I'm not willing to switch companies to save, say, 10 or $15 a month. I will pay a premium for customer service. Uh, now, you know, will I pay $50 a month more? Probably not. Yeah. And I do yeah. think overall, it's just despicable what we pay for our phones here. Um, you know, if you have, if you travel anywhere, you realize that, uh, you know, really the big companies should be charging a lot less and also offering reasonable customer service. You shouldn't have to um, go with a, a company where you just can't get a hold of anyone in order to still probably pay $60 a month for your phone or something like that. That is a quality populist message on the way out the door. <laughs> Laura Bain cupping her ear to get applause from the crowd at Accessible Media on X, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. Would you switch companies to get a cheaper cell phone plan? Hey, maybe you can use some of those broadband interwebs to let your thoughts be heard on this one beyond social media. Feedback at AMI.ca. Feedback at AMI.ca. That is the email address. Or you can pick up your phone. 
to give the show a call, 1-866-509-4545, 1-866-509-4545. Coming up after the break, the news panel gets together. Michelle McQuig, Joy Gupta, and I discuss self-screening kits in healthcare. How do you feel about provinces asking residents to engage in their own self-screening? This is now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv and in audio at amiplus.ca. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. It's Friday, which means the weekly news panel gets together saying hello and good morning to Joita Gupta and Michelle McQuig. Hello, Joita. Good morning, Dave. And good morning to Michelle. Good morning, friends. All right, let's jump right into it. British Columbia is phasing out the pap test for cancer screening in favor of mail-in kits collected by patients. Premier David Eby describes the process. British Columbians will be able to order this test for themselves online. It'll be delivered to your home. You can do it at home by yourself or in partnership with a healthcare professional. You mail it in in an envelope and you get the results in a few weeks. BC residents can request kits as of January the 29th. The Canadian Cancer Society <laughs> and the Society of Obstetricians and Gynecologists does support the decision. Michelle, I put that last little bit on there because I think that's important and it does tinge my feeling on this story a little bit because when mm -hmm. I first read it I, and I first saw this policy, I thought to myself, Oh man, I don't know if I trust humans to be in charge of their own health screening, but <laughs> if there are medical associations who have expertise and knowledge on this who say, no, this is a good idea and we think other provinces should follow suit, that does change my viewpoint a little bit. I still have skepticism, but how do you feel about provinces asking residents to engage in self-screening? Yeah, I, I, I empathize with you on a lot of this. I had a similar initial reaction, but in, in, in addition to the endorsement from the associations, I think the thing to, that really helps sort of reconcile me to it a little more than perhaps I might be otherwise, although I have concerns too, is the science behind it. So there is apparently quite a lot of evidence, including a big peer-reviewed Canadian-led study, 20,000-plus patients, et cetera, um, that proves that scanning for HPV is actually a better determinant and better preventative measure to address cervical cancer than what they were testing for before. So not only is are the, are the associations sort of supporting this, it sounds like there's science to support the fact that they're screening now for something better and that that screening can be done at home. So I think there's a certain amount of logic behind this, but I have concerns for sure, um, not just around your general human cynicism, Dave, although, you know, fair. Um, but I, I have accessibility concerns in a big way about mm -hmm. self-administered tests of any kind. Uh, this is something that there has not been many of accessible tests, whether it's pregnancy tests or COVID tests. Mm. I don't mm -hmm. see why HPV tests would be any different at all. And so that's a big, big concern that I have among among a few others, but I'll stop talking. Well, no, 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 Michelle, <laughs> I'm glad you raised that point. And Joita, I heard you make a sound of affirmation when Michelle mentioned accessibility. I think one slipped out of me as well. So we can get into that specificity in a second, but, I, but I'd like to give you the same opportunity to generally react to the idea of people being in charge of their own self-screening. 
Well, on paper, it's a good idea. There's a large study, and there was a pilot, in fact, that proves the, that points to the efficacy of this approach. And it says that, you know, early detection is obviously a good thing. Um, the fact that it detects the presence of the HPV virus means that there is a better prognosis for those who are diagnosed with cervical cancer and hopefully a higher survival rate. And, 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 and all of that is, of course, unquestionably a good thing. And also, if you think back to other forms of cancer, such as colon cancer, we do have uh, ways to test for those at home. And people are encouraged to take the test and um, report and, and, and have their primary care providers look into the findings and follow right, up care right. if that's required. So there are, there are, it's not a, you know, it's not a completely a, a bolt from the blue. Uh, and there's a lot of evidence to suggest that it works. The endorsement from the Canadian Cancer Society and others is nothing, is, is nothing to sneeze at. Yeah, exactly. Uh, because, you know, yeah. It, it, it yeah. does lend a, a veneer of legitimacy to the whole thing. And yet, if you look at the article you sent us, Dave, right there, tucked in towards the end is, this is a great way to get around the wait times we've been having for most types of screening. And then you go, okay, well, hang on a second. Yeah, so yeah. how much is this is about the science and how much of this is about cutting back on wait times and dealing with systemic issues? Are we making individuals responsible for system-wide failures that we have talked about at length on this panel? So I'm not going to get into it at this precise moment. But along with the accessibility concerns, I have concerns around other populations as well. Um, particularly the homeless or underhoused population with yes. children and, and people who have uh, maybe opioid addictions and other reasons why they may not have access to uh, uh, housing or even access to the internet for that matter. I mean, we heard off the top in that clip where they're saying, well, you can just order it online. Well, that presumes a lot of things. It assumes you have an address and it yep. assumes you have access mm -hmm. to the internet. So there are a number of, of, of facets to this conversation. It's an interesting idea. I'm not going to knock it and say, oh, it's a terrible idea. What I will say cautiously is that it's a good complement to existing approaches. Yeah, a complementary yes. approach, right? And I think that's where the, again, the endorsement of these societies, these medical associations really, really, really matters because they're saying, no, no, this is an effective way. The science backs this up. It's worth exploring. But that's the thing, Joita, you mentioned that last little addendum on the article, which is where my cynicism lies beyond the possibility of human error, because these endorsements aside, if we start talking more broadly about putting the onus of testing on individuals rather than trained professionals, Michelle, that's what starts to get me thinking about this as a spaghetti at the wall kind of experiment. And I know <clears throat> I've used that expression a lot in the last few, few months. I'll try to scale it back here <laughs> in the coming months. But that's where it kind of makes me feel more like, oof, is this spaghetti at the wall or is this sound policy? And does that have a tendency to maybe creep into other crises that have popped up where government policy is now, oh gosh, we have to just be creative, creative, creative. Yes, although I have, like, I, I, I'm a little torn on this in that there, yes, we are seeing, I think, more efforts to just try any old thing, but in and of itself, I don't necessarily see that as a negative because we have clearly gotten to the places we're at on so many files and portfolios through lack of action and lack of trying new things. And, and now I think it's time to perhaps start doing that. And there seems to be that recognition. But in this particular case, I don't necessarily feel like it's just spaghetti at the wall. I do feel like there is science to back it up. Yes, it probably does have a corollary benefit, a strong one of easing hospital wait times. But we're also seeing medical societies talking about how not everyone needs to seek hospital treatment for something. Screening like this could be a good example. So 
this particular case, I think, is a bit more science-driven than some of the other experiments that we've seen happening. And as such, I think there's some value to it, but that doesn't mean that the concerns that Joey yeah. had raised and that I echoed don't still exist. But I don't think it necessarily has to be one or the other. You know what I mean? Like That's it. Oh, for it, sure. When people for are sure. trying new things, I think a lot of it is driven by at least some some point of data. That seems worth. Mm -hmm. to have, it, seems, it seems to have some, some merit behind it. It's it's the specificity versus the generality, though. That that maybe the specificity of this particular case is good, or this particular kind of testing is good. But I wouldn't want that applied more broadly based on this as the case study, right? Like fair like enough. like that like totally that fair. like yeah. that's. But that's where my concern starts to lie here, Joita. That all of a sudden a, a pilot project or spaghetti at the wall for one thing says, well, why couldn't we do that for everything? And then we start really running into the issues that you identified in regards to people who may not have the resources to do this or the accessibility side that Michelle brought up. Because, yeah, there's no doubt, COVID-19 testing, that was not accessible at all. That was a leap of faith mm -hmm. every morning for someone to read a test for you if you had to test every day to go into work. Yeah, I mean, I don't think that there's um, that the idea of, of testing at home for certain conditions or illnesses is a novel in the in that we've established, I think, that it's that it's been around in some form or the other for a long time, case in point, uh, pregnancy tests. But I think when it comes down to the nitty gritties of testing for certain illnesses or forms of cancer, the question really becomes, well, what are you going to test and how are you going to test it? Uh, and is that and is the thing that you are testing to verify the presence or absence of a particular condition, uh, are those tests reliable? Uh, are they consistent? And can they be scientifically backed up? And I think before um, the government signs off on a particular approach uh, for at-home testing for any particular kind of illness or disease, uh, you know, they have to, for uh, uh, as well as the companies and the uh, other entities that back up the the efficacy of that approach, everybody should be really clear about the science. I mean, can yeah. you think about it as someone's putting on the market a pregnancy test where, you know, it's where it's accurate about, I don't know, 75% of the times or 50% yeah, yeah. of the times? Like, that would be a disaster yeah. if we had uh, pregnancy tests that were um, that were on, you know, that were all over the place. And the reason I mentioned this is because, you know, you say spaghetti on the wall. And I think, you know, when it comes to a lot of public policy issues, uh, we see a lot more of that happening where it's spaghetti on the wall and you have a lot more of that thinking, which is pervasive, saying, OK, well, you know, if it works in, in, in this one issue, why don't we give it a shot and see if it'll work in other issues? In fact, more than, you know, cross-issue uh, implementation, I would even say that people are very cavalier about jurisdiction. You know, if this thing works in BC, yes. why wouldn't it work in Manitoba? And, you know, maybe Manitoba has a very different landscape or reality when it comes totally. to housing or yeah. food security. Yeah. But when it comes to healthcare, I think we do have more checks and balances in place. We have put more guardrails in place. Uh, and of course, we know, those are the stories that we we flock to. If you hear about medical misconduct or you know any any kind of malfeasance in the healthcare sector, Canadians are understandably up in arms. So I do think that it's a little less spaghetti on the wall. It is a little more science driven. Uh, but of course, as you both noted, we do have a number of accessibility concerns um, and a number of other populations, the homeless populations. I would say anyone who's a bit older. Uh, anyone with comorbidity or issues like dementia, indigenous communities or people in rural Canada who may not have access to these um, kits. So, you yeah. know, or even a family physician well, who might actually be able to interpret oh, the results. So. That, so that's one of these things too, right? That that I, I, I think about the reality of people who don't have the right resources available to them already, medically speaking. Okay, so I took this at-home test. I've got, I've got an address. I've got, I'm at home, I'm online, I can order this thing. 
uh-oh, I've tested positive, or, I've, or I'm showing, uh, I'm showing a, a worrisome symptom. Okay, what now? I'm right back into the system that's going to take three, four months for me to see a doctor, right? Like, it, yeah. it's almost like, okay, thank you for telling me that I have a problem, and now the system still can't help me. But like so, so like that, like that's one of the things where I land at this morning, where I say, "Hey, this is like a nice little press conference win, and the idea might actually be pretty good." But until you start making the structural changes that don't necessitate, and the wait times don't necessitate these policies, you still have to actually like treat people if they do test positive. So the, the, the yeah. you know surgical surgical 100%. backlogs yeah. and wait times and ERs at 137 percent capacity in Quebec, you know, I, the, the similar situation in Ontario, BC's at 100 percent right now. So like, these are things that might ease a load a little bit or change the process for an individual patient, but like it doesn't fix the fundamentally broken system. Mm -hmm. It doesn't fix it, but I feel like it's it's a thousand small tweaks like this that ultimately might help. You know, there are areas where broader reform is probably necessary, but small tweaks in enough volume do matter. Yeah. And easing pressure points matters. So I don't think yeah, it's, you, you know, I, I wouldn't want to dismiss it on those grounds alone. Oh, yeah, I'm not asking, I'm not asking provinces to solve healthcare in one, in one fell swoop, but I, <laughs> but I worry, I worry sometimes, I worry sometimes that they take one victory on a Tuesday and then they get to go away for three and weeks. And crow about it for the rest of the year. No, yeah. that's, that's very fair. Yeah. I, I believe let's, that, that's all. Yeah. All that's right. Fair. All right. Let's 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 leave that there. I've been negative and optimistic enough in one segment. So now we can move on to something different. Coming up next, Montreal's Olympic Stadium needs one billion dollars in repairs. Is it time to tear down the great white whale of Montreal's East End? This is the Now News Panel on AMI TV. the Now News Panel on AMI-tv. I'm Dave Brown, joined by Michelle McQuig and Joey Gupta. Let's get into the next topic. Montreal's Olympic Stadium is in need of repairs. That's not a new story. Uh, I've been alive since 1983, and that's an annual story out of the city of Montreal. But the cost of the most recent repairs, well, they're starting to stack up here. The cost of a roof repair, along with a support ring, might add up to a billion dollars. A billion dollars. A few folks have suggested maybe it's time to tear the whole thing down. Joita, what do you find interesting about this story? Well, as you say, the fact that the stadium and other sports venues, the older they get, the fact that they have these mounting bills for repairs isn't newsworthy in and of itself. But the billion-dollar price tag does make you wake up and pay attention and say, hang on a second, what is going on here? Uh, week after week on this panel, we talk about housing, we talk about food, we talk about healthcare, and how there just doesn't seem to be enough money in the pot to try and address any of those issues. And then wham, way out of left field, you get a story like this saying, <laughs> can we drop a billion dollars to fix a fix the roof of an Olympic stadium in Montreal? And it's a probably an, an issue that not that isn't just relevant for Montreal, although that's probably where we will focus today. But it is something that I think a number of cities with aging sports arenas and other facilities have to contend with, which is who pays for the repairs? Uh, how relevant is it? Um, and, you know, ultimately, what's the public good here? Uh, especially when you look at the uh, Olympic movement, it's not 
without its fans and it's not without its critics. And the critics have been very quick to point out that uh, the Olympic Games and other major sporting events leave behind a legacy of debt and that many of these sport sports facilities, uh, although they become much beloved national symbols and icons or local symbols and icons also carry with them are also you know white elephants and end up soaking up a lot of money and resources so what do we do with the stadium is this the best way to fund uh, the olympics and to have uh, and to pay for venues what are the what are the repercussions for local uh, and national policies to have these 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 white elephants and are there other models that we should be looking to as we move into you know into um the next decade to try and and mitigate the cost and the impact of some of these games. So it's a it's a it's a a, a question that's always fun to wrestle with. Oh, I think. Oh, okay, let's start small because you, you went you went pre, you went pretty big there. But let, let's start small <laughs> with Montreal itself. <laughs> by the way, the Olympic Stadium in Montreal was never beloved. It's it's been hated my entire life. Uh, <laughs> oh, they, okay. they, they, they 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 should have torn this thing down 23 years ago. <laughs> they especially should tear it down now that it has no resident team that it serves. The Expos are gone. The oh. The, Al right. the, the Alouettes play downtown. There's like a couple of monster truck rallies and maybe an occasional Metallica concert that goes on <laughs> at the Olympic Stadium. The, 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 at this point, the Olympic Stadium serves no purpose to the city of Montreal. There's some really cool stuff around the Olympic Stadium. The Stade Saputo, what used to be the Biodome. It's now the Espace TV. It's really awesome. It's where I used to take girls on dates. It's amazing. <laughs> like, But the Olympic Stadium is time to go. And Michelle, if it's a billion dollars, price tag to keep this useless thing up i i can't imagine it's gonna cost a billion to tear it down and and like a billion it seems to be a conservative estimate from what i understand a billion would handle the most basic of the fundamental structural repairs we're talking about a roof that's patched in what a thousand plus places thousand plus places yeah um, um and even but, but apart from that apparently the acoustics are terrible the the fields can only be used in half the year so the billion-dollar price tag, as far as I understand, it doesn't even address those issues that would make it worth fixing in the first place. So um, I, I apologize if my lack of nostalgia or sentimental consideration here hurts any Montrealers, but I'm on team. I'm on team. Tear it down. It, Sorry, it, it will hurt no Montrealers. I mean, you know, maybe there's a couple. Maybe there's a couple outliers who beloved the Olympic Stadium, but uh, they are few, 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 and far between. Uh, Julia, just just be quick on this one because I think I know where you land. What to do with the Olympic Stadium in Montreal? Well, put simply, I think it is perhaps time to demolish it because of all the reasons that you've outlined already. So. Yeah, there you go. It like it serves no purpose at this point. It serves no purpose, and if the stadium doesn't serve a purpose, a billion dollars of taxpayer money should not go into fixing it yeah, after yeah. the taxpayers have already spent billions and billions on the thing since the nineteen since the late nineteen sixties and early nineteen seventies. So yeah, l l let's get rid of this thing. It's useless. Bye bye. Now let's explore the interesting stuff, which is the broader point that Juita brought out here, because the Olympics in Montreal ended up being quite a costly affair. There are plenty of other host cities that have had uh, not great fortunes with their Olympic hosting. I think uh, Athens, Greece is one that definitely got uh, beaten up pretty good. Sochi, Russia, Sydney, Australia. There, yeah. there have been some positive cases, though. The city of Vancouver is a much different place because of the Olympics. And there were a lot of improvements that got put into place by the city of Vancouver hosting the 2010 Winter Olympics. Joita, you've yelled at me about this before. Well, Dave, they could have done that anyway. 
but to a certain degree, local leaders and local businesses want some kind of return on investment if they're going to make those kinds of investments. And sometimes you need a little fancy carrot to dangle there. Um, I've got a more nuanced opinion than simply that, but Juita, where are you at on cities spending uh, big money to host large-scale sporting events? It's a tricky one, and the reason it's tricky is because um, there's often a lot of pressure put on politicians to go along with bids for Olympics and other games. One of the ways in which um, the prospect of hosting the games is dangled before residents is by saying, think about all those things you wanted done all these decades. Well, this is your chance to get affordable housing built. We'll have an athlete's village, yeah. and once the games are gone, it'll be turned into affordable housing. You know how you've been saying things just aren't accessible in the city? Well, here's your chance to get things made accessible. You know how you said you wanted that highway or that thing that can, you know, or this motorway or this this something else that connects point A to point B? Well, this is your chance to have it. So there is often a, a lot of pressure put on politicians. On the one hand, people are told that, you know, all these things that you wanted locally or these promises that have been dangled in front of you for years, they'll finally come to fruition once the games come to town. Um, uh, but also, there's a lot of propaganda and a lot of PR and, uh, where people spin to say, but you know what? Yes, the games will carry a hefty price tag, but you're not going to see any deficits. Uh, in fact, in relation to the uh, 1976 Olympics in Montreal, it was it was said by one politician, the mayor of Montreal at the time, that the Olympics were about as likely to run into a deficit as a man was to have a baby. So, you know, there's a lot of spin that happens when the games come to town. And yet, inevitably, as we see in the case of Montreal and many other cities, cities end up paying for these games for decades after the fact. And it does yeah. tend to, the research show, skew public spending in favor of the games and away from other priorities. Uh, one of the points that I made many years to you, uh, ago to you, Dave, was, well, if you want housing and we want things, cities, why don't we just pay for those things up front? So... I think it's it's um, it's tricky because it's often an inducement to try and 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 create spaces that ostensibly are for the public good, but many of these Olympic arenas, uh, venues, and sports arenas get used not by the average Joe, but by elite sports teams. So you know your local hockey team or your neighborhood baseball team is not going to be playing in the Olympic Stadium. So you really have to take that pronouncement with a grain of salt as well. So I think that there are other perhaps more sensible options when it comes to hosting large-scale sporting events. I mean, we've we've not even had to talk about the security and the hefty price tag for security for many of these events. But, you know, as you can see with Montreal, um, 40 years down the line, you're now looking at scrapping the thing because it took a billion dollars to build it, and they're saying it's going to yeah. take a billion dollars to it, refurbish it. it. It was built badly, though. Like, right from the start, it was built badly. So, like, that matters, too. There, there were standards. Uh, I want to come back to Vancouver because Vancouver is not a case of theoretical. There's tangible differences in Vancouver. The airport is connected via public transit to the downtown core. That is not nothing. The Sea to Sky Highway yeah. connects the city core all the way up to Whistler. There are a lot of people who use those resources and services frequently. The Richmond Oval has become a wonderful place for community in regards to community and sports. So there are tangible impacts in Vancouver for games that did not run a deficit. Like never, never lose sight of the fact that Quebec will do things corruptly if given the opportunity. And they were given ample opportunity for the 1976 Summer Olympics. Michelle, where are you at on city spending big money to host large-scale sporting events? <laughs> 
I, I am profoundly conflicted about it. Uh, I have I have concerns about the Olympics. I, I think that there's a certain. I, I've always been taken aback by the dog and pony show that comes out every time vying for the host cities. I'm very much awake to the concerns, all of which that Joita has that, that has outlined. But the net good, really, there's a lot of it, not just the ones you mentioned. It can do so much to encourage youth and local sport as well as elite sport, having updated facilities in some of these big centers and even some of the more far-flung places because it's not just the cities where events take place too, right? There's adjacent communities where sometimes facilities are updated and things can can be improved as, as other events are hosted there. So uh, I, there's a lot of net good. There's, I, I'm so conflicted. I'm, I never really know where to come down on this. I wish it was a bit less hype. I, I wish it was just a bit more scaled back, and then I would probably be more equivocally in favor of this whole process. Yeah, I, I, I think sometimes when you apply the lens more broadly and internationally, there was no reason for Brazil to host the 2014 World Cup, building stadiums in the middle of the Amazon that are that were not accessible by vehicles. Mm. Like, like, mm. like, like, you know, there, there's stuff that you have to look at with a real sense of rationality. And it, third world countries or emerging economies maybe shouldn't be spending uh, that kind of money to build useless stadiums in useless places. So, so I think I think that there's a certain sense of you have to look at every story on an individual basis. But where I truly land on things, despite acknowledging the positives of when you do this and do this properly, when you do hosting international sporting events properly, in the aggregate, I think it's a really bad idea and does relate and does turn into a lot of these dog and pony shows. And you have to spend a lot of money just to do the bid <laughs> before you even necessarily... Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's part of it, right? Like, it's just... it. It's so much pageantry, and I feel like the, the the better substance of things, not just the games themselves, but the proper planning for them and the long-term planning of them that could get more community buy-in is lost to a lot of this pomp and circumstance that yeah. comes with going for the bid in the first place. Which is why I've somewhat reached the point, especially with the Olympics, Mm, soccer's a little bit different because I think there are a lot of places that are well-equipped to host the World Cup that don't involve uh, billions of dollars of taxpayer money going into useless places. But I think with the Olympics especially, I would suggest we're at the point where it's time for one central location yeah. to do the Winter Games and one central location to do the Summer Games. And every single four years, everybody recongregates there. And it's going to feel kind of nice, Joita, because there'll be a sense of familiarity. And then the IOC can use some of those billions of dollars that they have to refurbish their own facilities. Yeah, I think that's really where we're headed uh, now, especially with um, the last couple of years being having been as chaotic as they are and putting the pressures that they have, not just on individuals, but also on various levels of government. Cost of living is a pretty big mm. talking point. You turn around and we spend billions of dollars on uh, bidding for a game and building facilities and on and on and on. I think there's going to be less appreciation for it. What I think makes the whole thing that much more complicated is, you know, where is the political will to do some of the 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 things that the games uh, bring to local communities without the games coming to town? By which I mean, you, you use the example in Vancouver about uh, now the airport is connected to downtown. Well, why did it take the games in 2010 to make that happen? Where was the why wasn't there enough political will will or funding or what have you to try and make that thing happen before the games come to town? The, the inducement of the carrot is that all of these things that people really want and need and are desperate to have 
come and only ever come to fruition when the games come to town. And if if and and that's what makes people look the other way uh, and swallow the large price tag. I mean, so I think you're right. I think it is time to have a very serious conversation about maybe just having permanent venues uh, for the Olympic Games. And and can I just say that I don't want anyone to misconstrue here. I think that uh, the athletes who compete in the Olympics are fantastic. It's great to watch. Um, and maybe there is something to be said for appreciating the the athletes and the athleticism that goes into competing in the Olympics, while also remaining critical of the legacy of debt and the you know that that many of these games leave behind. Michelle, I, I put forward my idea of a central funding model that says, hey, central yeah. places for the winter and the summer games that might uh, help with some of the ethical and moral quandaries posed by uh, large-scale international sporting events. But what do you think about these funding models or a better funding model? No, you know what? I think the central one has a lot going for it, and there's also a pretty strong sustainability and environmental argument to be made for that as well, if you're not doing quite as much travel and you're know, having to shuttle as many people as far you don't have as much development and construction going on as people chase this uh so for all the i won't repeat what everyone has said but i think there's a lot to that kind of model and although I, I do kind of shudder at the bidding process that would ensue for that contract right to, to be to be the permanent to be the permanent yeah, olympic site yeah it, that if, if, if I find the, the, the city process a bit hard to stomach, I suspect uh, I'd have to really buckle up for that one. Yeah. There's also going to be some folks who are going to be pretty cranky because, like, there's obviously probably going to be a continental bias here, and it's probably going to end up being Europe, and then everyone's going to complain about time zones, and then it's a whole new thing. But, uh, yeah, burn that bridge when you get there. Okay, let's leave that one aside. Coming up after the break, more sports talk. Well, it's kind of sports talk. An amateur soccer association in Quebec is going to be equipping referees with body cameras to prevent abuse from parents and coaches and players. What do you think? Overreaction, a little bit uh, too safety focused here, or a sign of deeply uncivil times? This is the Now News Panel on AMI-tv. It's the Now News Panel on AMI-tv. I'm Dave Brown, joined by Juita Gupta and Michelle McQuig. One more topic on deck for you. An amateur sports association in Quebec's eastern townships plans to equip referees with body cameras next season. The decision is in response to referees facing abuse from players, parents, coaches. Other jurisdictions and other sports have similar policies on the books. Michelle, why'd the story jump out to you? Well, I the fact that it's happening in other sports was, I have to confess, somewhat news to me until I read this article. So that's why it jumped out at me, because initially it seemed kind of novel. I, I was struck by, I, I thought, is this, is, what's going on here? Is there something going on here? Or are we talking about pearl clutching? Or is this a sign of something bigger? And it looks to me like perhaps it might be a bit towards the latter, because like you said, Dave, they're, they're, we're talking about violence and, and, and incidents of, of parental harassment and, and and coach bullying and whatnot across multiple sports. And we're talking about minor sports, like l literal children involved here. And the 
the incidents of violence are, are it's not just about you know the odd heckling we're talking the, the cases where people have been chased with machetes people mm-hmm. have gone to hospital actual brawls breaking out on the field um so th- this really can undercut the sporting experience for for everyone be actively damaging in many ways it does not do much to instill uh <laughs> the sort of values that a lot of people are hoping to achieve with with team sports um, but there are also a lot of other indicators that we've talked a bit on this panel about civility in society. And this is where I, I feel like the concerns being raised and the, the issue of the body cameras really comes back to that. What is there something bigger going on here? I am inclined to think maybe there is, but I was very much interested in what your take was. All right, so let's start again with the small and get to the big. So the small is reacting to this kind of policy, this kind of decision, Joita, the nature mm-hmm. of the precaution. Uh, it's one that makes total sense to me. Uh, body cameras and cameras in general are smaller and cheaper than they've ever been before, and the amount of abuse being hurled at uh, referees has never been higher. Michelle mentions uh, these are oftentimes children on the field. In many cases, these are also children who are officials. It's a lot of 14, 15, and 16-year-olds who are engaging in this officiating of these uh, minor league games or uh, amateur association games. So to me, Joita, this is a perfectly reasonable solution to a very unreasonable problem. Yes, I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, I had to do a double take when I went and read the article and I said, hang on a second, are you telling me that we're talking about teenagers, 14, 15, 16 year olds being hassled and heckled and bullied by people who are adults, their parents and other people getting, you know, and there is a lot of evidence to back up the fact that sometimes parents act in very well, childish ways, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, by getting into fights with other parents and uh, getting into you know spats with coaches and 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 refs and getting into you know frankly getting into uh, very upset about the outcome of games. So you know I think it's an incredibly sensible precaution given the evidence to back it up. It's sad that it has come to a a place where this is now required, but it doesn't take away from the fact that in light of the evidence, it is an imminently sem- sensible approach. Yeah, the 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 issue itself of parents or players or coaches behaving badly is not a new one. This has existed for a long time in amateur sports. I used to work uh, for elite level hockey tournaments in the Montreal area. And over the course of the four or five day tournament, we'd usually have to call security to, to an individual rink maybe once or twice for an unruly parent or an unruly coach uh, yelling at a referee, but it was always jarring when it happened. It was always really noticeable and really jarring when it happened. I I was usually working in pretty close collaboration with the officials uh, during the course of a game, and it it was pretty noticeable that it wasn't, oh, this parent's had one too many uh, Miller Lights or Labatt Blues. This parent came here today to, like, cause trouble. But, Michelle, Mm -hmm. when you start thinking about the issue not necessarily being a new one, but maybe this is something more about more people being empowered to be that singular jerk that we would find at a hockey tournament rather than every single game there's a jerk. I think maybe it's a bit of both. And I think this is what we're getting back at things we've talked about in, in, in other contexts, but I feel like there's similar issues. When we've talked, let's say, about increasing levels of harassment that politicians are facing, I feel like that kind of thing is a similar underlying cause, whatever that may be. Is it pandemic mental health holdover? I don't know. 
Is it the cli the political climate we're now in, where, where all kinds of statements that would have been unthinkable decades and decades past are now kind of commonplace? I don't know. I really don't know what's driving this, but that to me there are many many examples, and not just here. And I think we're going to get to some of those later of other places that are less safe and less stable and more violent, frankly, than they used to be. So I, I, I feel like this is just an extension of that same phenomenon, frankly. Joita, what do you think? Just uh, growth in incivility, or is it that there are just more cameras involved capturing incivility, chicken and egg here? A bit, uh, probably a bit of both. I think um, you're right to say that parental misbehavior in, in sports um, is nothing new. Uh, it's true that um, there are many stressors and factors that exist now that maybe weren't as pervasive uh, even a decade ago. Uh, cost of living challenges, work-life balance, you name it. It's not an excuse mm -hmm. yeah. by any my, means. My avocado it, cost me $3 at the grocery store. I'm going to yell at this 14-year-old. Yeah, no, it's not, a, it's, not, it's not an excuse by any means, but it, it's, very hey. hard to draw, it's very hard to draw the lines is what I'm saying. Like if someone is facing pressure at work or someone is not being able to pay their bills and they're trying to you know, get their kid in, in, uh, to compete, all I'm saying, it's, not, it's never that clear cut. You can never say, well, you know, just turn the taps off or draw a line under the issues that are bothering you in real life when you're when you're you, when you're watching your kids play a sports game again to be very clear it's not a justification but i do think it is an extension that some of the misbehavior or the spike in misbehavior that we're talking about is uh, is to an extent a reflection of real world problems bleeding into uh the sporting world which is not all, all that unusual uh but i think Part of it is, yes, cameras are catching uh, people in the act a little bit more, um, which is a bit surprising because one of the reasons why cameras and body cameras are, are, are promoted as an option to try and address this behavior is that it is hoped that if people realize that their behavior will be caught on camera, they are less likely to have an outburst. Uh, but, you know, that opens up a whole other question about whether cameras are really as effective as we say that yeah. they are, but you know, we yeah. don't think the, that's the, peop the, whole... the people at Walmart social media feed uh, would tell you otherwise. Cameras don't appear to stop people <laughs> from uh, acting no. a fool. Uh, Michelle, you alluded to it, so you should elaborate on it. The idea of where this might uh, be applicable in other domains, more body cameras on more people and more professions. Well, this is, I mean, <laughs> that's a whole other issue is whether or not that would even be viable or desirable. Um, I'm going to leave that aside for now. We, we, we've heard this conversation a lot in policing, of course, and it's been adopted more widely with policing. I, I'll, have, context... I'll, have a I'll have a story, by the way, in the next segment about it expanding in British Columbia starting this year. Oh, yeah, that's right. Okay, cool. Anyway, but the, the other setting that came to mind as I was reading this story from my colleague Jacob Sarabran on, on this particular body cam issue was, was schools. We've talked a little bit on the panel, and a, some of us have read a lot more about rising levels of violence that teachers are facing from, from other students, primarily, uh, sometimes from parents and other causes too, though. But that's one area where it really occurred to me that I could see a push for that. And I could also foresee an equally forceful pushback from people who might be really uncomfortable with that notion. There's whole issues around privacy. If body cam use were, were to expand more broadly into other public places, uh, you know, I wonder if certain restaurants I could see wanting to do endless policies like this. I don't think we're at the point where governments would want to consider having that for civil servants, but but who knows? What, it, what do you mean by restaurants? It, for like dine and dashers? Dine and dashers are people who are who who are, are rude to or otherwise assault staff. Um, yeah, I, I could foresee a situation like that.
Juita, where else, uh, where else could body cameras pop up if they did indeed, if they do indeed serve the purpose that uh, some folks trot out that they claim they do? Mm -hmm. Well, hypothetically, they could pop up anywhere because they're small, they're easy to wear. No, no, no. Not... I'm not asking you that. Like, I'm asking you, like, where do you see these place them fitting yeah. in? Yeah, I think where, I mean, I would lean it towards some of the things that Michelle has pointed out. Uh, policing is a really big one. Uh, there are arguments on both sides for why cameras are a good and a bad thing. I mean, there are people who've said that having camera, uh, police forces equipped with cameras uh, might keep officers safe, but might also, on the other hand, prevent uh, instances of police misconduct, whether or not that has actually played out as a whole other conversation. And then, of course, yeah. yes, schools. Um, and that's a really interesting setting. Now, cameras are not unusual to find in schools, especially in hallways and things like that. So it's not the most novel idea, but certainly there are concerns uh, about having body cameras in schools as well. Uh, and, you know, not least of which is that we are recording and surveilling minors uh, and also yeah. the teachers would actually want to have their behavior um, recorded in a way. So cameras are... I mean, it's so easy to have them in, in different spaces. I was actually thinking about public transit workers and other sort of civil servants oh, as yeah. well, because those people face a lot of abuse. And there is a very strong argument for, to be made for equipping uh, bus drivers and, you know, transit workers and other people like that and public servant, you know, anyone who comes in, in contact with like front, who's working on the front lines to equip them with, um, with cameras. Uh, but I don't know. There's a part of me that feels, what is this, 1985? I mean, are we just heading for a surveillance society? What's going on? So I don't want to overreach either. So. Yeah, I, I, exactly. I, under yeah. I, I understand that, but there might just have to be this yeah. reality and understanding that when you're in a public place, it's not private anymore. If you're on a bus, it's no. not a private place, right? If you're in a restaurant, it's not actually a private place. You're in public. I actually feel yeah. moved to have the caveat that just because I could foresee body cameras being in a certain setting doesn't mean I would endorse that idea. Yeah, yeah. There you go. I, like said, I, think, I think that's a great way to land mm -hmm. the plane on this one, Michelle. Joita, Michelle, thank you both for this. Joita, have a lovely weekend. Thank you. You too. Michelle, you enjoy your weekend as well. Thank you. Take care, everybody. Michelle McQuig is the weekend news editor at the Canadian Press. Joita Gupta is the host of The Pulse on AMI audio coming up after the break a little more body camera talk as uh, the province of british columbia is going to be expanding the use of body cameras for its various police forces i'll have that story for you it's now with dave brown on ami tv It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv, in audio on AMIplus.ca, and on demand on your favorite podcasting platform. I'm Dave Brown. It's Friday, January the 12th, 2024. Coming up in the second hour of the show, Rocky Health has launched a mental health service for men. Dr. George Mancarius tells you all about it. And the 2024 shortlist for Canada Reads is out. Karen McKay gives you the scoop. The hour begins with the regional news update.
Beginning in British Columbia, the BC Association of Chiefs of Police says more police officers in the province will be outfitted with body cameras this year. Delta Police Chief Harj Sidhu discusses how cameras can improve transparency. We do believe that it totally enhances public transparency and trust because it is providing a video. Is it perfect? No, it's, it's another tool. Are there, is it seeing everything that's occurring? Can it put context of the perception of the officer? Absolutely not, but it's another tool in the process to be able to inform what occurred during that interaction. Departments all across the country plan to roll out more body cameras this year. Over to the prairies, Edmonton Mayor Amarjeet Sohi says he is planning to declare a housing and homelessness emergency. Sohi has called a special city council meeting for Monday. Edmonton police dismantled the last of eight homeless encampments earlier this week. Sohi says the social system is beyond capacity. And over to the Atlantic provinces. More than $7 million in federal and provincial funding will help build 39 affordable homes in St. John, New Brunswick. Barrick Green Residences, a four-story apartment building with a mix of one, two, and three-bedroom units will be constructed at 67 Broadview Street. The building will be geared towards families recovering from mental health and addiction issues. The project is expected to be completed by November. That's your look at the regional news. Here comes Brock Richardson for a sports chat. Brock, it is NFL Wild Card Weekend. The playoffs are set to begin tomorrow afternoon, 4.30 p.m. Eastern time, when the Cleveland Browns visit the Houston Texans. Brock, there's one reason and one reason alone to tune into this game, and that is for the utter brilliance of Houston Texans quarterback C.J. Stroud. He's a rookie. He was drafted second overall. He has been a phenom all year. Every game he's played in has been top tier. This is one of the emerging young stars of the game in his first playoff appearance. That and that alone is reason to tune in tomorrow at 4.30 p.m. Eastern time. And also, Dave, I would just add that it's the NFL playoffs, and so that alone is... Okay, well, that's kind, that's kind of obvious, but, like, you know, yeah. like, you, know you got to find some storylines here, Brock. Storylines! Yeah. Yeah. Right. yeah. Later on tomorrow night, the Miami Dolphins visit the Kansas City Chiefs. Brock, why should someone tune into this game? Um... I think that if you're looking for an underdog story and the story of the way Miami can play i think this is intriguing i think it's also intriguing because um we've seen patrick mahomes and his team kind of struggle down the stretch and so do we get the playoff patrick mahomes or do we get the season patrick mahomes where it's kind of been like where they limp a little bit there's been some injuries on the miami Dolphins side and jalen waddle and uh bradley chubb whether they get one or two of those athletes back, I think is still remain to be seen. But they need one of, one of those two athletes to come back to, I believe, have a chance. But if you're looking for an underdog story, this is one of those games that you would want to tune in for. And, of course, you want to know, is Taylor Swift around in 
tomorrow's game for the Swifty people that like to watch the game for that reason. So yeah. the reason someone should tune in tomorrow is because it's going to be about minus 15 degrees in Kansas City with the possibility of snow. Watching millionaires shiver will always bring me joy. <laughs> Sunday, 1 p.m. Eastern time, the Pittsburgh Steelers visit the Buffalo Bills. Brock, there's nothing interesting about this game. Uh, other than the fact that I'm a fan, no, there's probably nothing interesting about this game. It, I mean, Buffalo should take this quite handily. There's a ton of injuries on the side of the uh, Pittsburgh Steelers. Uh, it's going to be freezing cold in Buffalo as it normally is at this time of year. So, yeah, to me, I'd be surprised if I came on here on Monday and said nothing less than Buffalo took care of business. But other than being a fan, that's the only thing I could say. 4.25 p.m. Eastern time, the Green Bay Packers visit the Dallas Cowboys in a battle of big-time major brands. Brock, the Green Bay Packers are the fifth youngest team ever to make the playoffs. The fifth youngest team ever. A lot of young talent on that team. Yeah, uh, and, and again, it, it sort of starts with uh, Jordan Love at quarterback. And I... I love young teams. You know, I love seeing young teams probably, can I say, Dave, overachieve this year? I, I think I can. Uh, and, I, and I would love to see Green Bay take this one. However, I see the Dallas Cowboys really uh, taking hold of this and, and moving on as they should with Dak Prescott and company uh, doing what they should do. But uh, again, talk about an underdog story. I love it. I'm rooting for Green Bay in this in this game. You want to talk about narratives, an interesting story. The Los Angeles Rams cap off the weekend by visiting the Detroit Lions on Sunday night, just after 8 p.m. Eastern time. Brock, this game is compelling simply because of the quarterback matchup. A couple of years ago, the Detroit Lions traded away Matthew Stafford to the L.A. Rams... This was their franchise quarterback for nearly a decade. Matthew Stafford goes out, wins the Super Bowl for the Los Angeles Rams. And in that trade, the Rams traded to Detroit Jared Goff, who had taken them to a Super Bowl. And they said, nah, we don't want you. We don't like you. Get out of here. You smell. You're no good at football. We don't like having you around. And now, flash forward a couple of years. Yes, the LA Rams did cash a Super Bowl, but now Matthew Stafford goes back to Detroit on a Sunday night to finally play a playoff game in Detroit to go place the to play against the trash can that was traded away for him Jared Goff this is a human human story on Sunday night Brock and you know I I, I don't really care what people say about this and that you know professional athletes put these kind of storylines aside when this kind of thing happens and you're going and playing against your old team who said, basically, we don't want you, that's real, real story. And you better believe that they're coming in there saying, no, I'm going to prove that you should have kept me. And it's a real thing. Athletes want to prove their worth. And so this is why I am really looking forward to this game. And I think it's an appropriate time to put this game because there'll be a ton of eyeballs on this game for the reasons you just illustrated. This is another one of those ones I have circled on my on my uh, football watching 
schedule. Well, you know, it's not hard. There's only five games to watch, and they're all one at a time. So it's not, it's not mm, as if yeah. you're like, oh, I'm picking my agenda here. The agenda found you. Brock, thank you for this. You're welcome. That is Brock Richardson. He is at the AMI Sports Desk. Coming up next, Rocky Health has launched a mental health service for men. Dr. George Mencarius tells you all about it. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Survey, survey data finds that nearly half of Canadian men are too embarrassed to talk openly about mental health with their doctor or partner. It also found that men are more likely to seek mental health support if no one knew about it. Rocky Health has officially launched a men's mental health service. The initiative aims to improve access to care with support offered discreetly 24-7. Dr. George Mancarios has more details. He's the chief medical officer for Rocky Health. Dr. Mancarios, thank you so much for making the time to be on the show today. I'm grateful. Thank you very much for having me. It's, uh, it's an absolute pleasure to be here um, and uh, definitely excited to speak to you a bit more about men's mental health. I think that stat that I cited off the top sort of answers this question, but I want to hear it from you. Why did you and your colleagues decide to start the Rocky Health Initiative? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. So, you know, me and the two co-founders are actually childhood friends. We've been uh, very good friends ever since we were about eight or nine years old. And uh, we uh, all have a, uh, a background in healthcare. So myself being a family physician and uh, the other two co-founders being pharmacists. And um, more importantly, I think, you know, the there was personal experiences that we had um, that kind of made this all come together. Um, I know personally when I was in medical school, I was going through um, issues with experiencing hair loss, uh, but I wasn't exactly aware of what I could do about it. And more importantly, uh, when I did hear of certain solutions, uh, you know, it came with, with negative connotations about potential side effects, et cetera. And so I, I, I kind of, I, I didn't do anything about it for, for a very long time um, until I came across a friend of mine who actually had used the treatment and had had very good results, right? And so I started using it myself, and I noticed the, the tremendous improvement that I had. And it wasn't just about me regaining that hair back. It was more about the, the issues that I was experiencing with kind of having, uh, I guess, problems with, with self-confidence to an extent, right? There's obviously like a self-image uh, that, that comes with, with losing hair. Um, but it then made me realize that, you know, had I, one, been aware of the solutions that were available and two, uh, had access to a healthcare professional who could kind of explain to me, uh, you know, the, the actual instance of side effects, for example, that I would have definitely started that treatment uh, a long time ago, right? So I think that's, that's one aspect is just people not, uh, or men, sorry, not having necessarily the, that understanding um, and the accessibility to the right information. The second thing is, and more importantly, when it comes specifically to mental health, I think, you know, being on the front line day to day as a family physician, I see the issues that, uh, that come with the inaccessibility um, for a lot of men. And, uh, and more importantly, the, the struggles that they have with just being open and honest with how they feel. 
Um, and so we found that, you know, if we could basically put our heads together and, and come up with solutions to kind of tackle these problems, then hopefully we can, you know, provide a better way for, for men to address their mental health. How are you hoping to approach that? Because certainly when, when you think about that stat where people are uncomfortable expressing it in the first place, how is Rocky aiming to bridge that gap or make people, men, more comfortable to reach out and, and express that need and offer a service? Yeah, absolutely. So I think it's, it's twofold. One is, you know, Rocky ultimately is available 24-7. So there, there's no need to, uh, you know, look for a family physician or even wait, uh, you know, for your doctor to, to reach out to you because sometimes wait times can be, you know, even a couple of weeks. Uh, but more importantly, you know, there is more comfort in, in, uh, in someone uh, filling out a medical questionnaire um, and then having someone reach out to them through a phone call uh, versus going in face-to-face -face and kind of speaking to your doctor about it. And, and to your point, uh, you know, we went out there and we kind of found that information ourselves. We wanted to know what is it that men specifically struggle with to kind of express their emotions or seek the help that they need. Um, and interestingly enough, we found that approximately 45% of men uh, are too embarrassed to even, you know, or, or sorry, they'd be more likely to, to speak to a healthcare provider if no one knew about it. So that, that discretion plays a big role, which is, you know, something that we try to bring to the forefront in the services that we deliver. What does the process look like for someone who might be uh, seeking assistance from Rocky Health? Rocky Health? Yeah, so that's a great question. Um, ultimately, you know, everything is done online. So you would fill in a pre-questionnaire, which is kind of like a screening tool to see whether or not you would be an appropriate candidate for virtual services. Uh, if you are, it then takes you to a main questionnaire, which asks, uh, you know, an extensive amount of questions to try and understand more about the issues that they're experiencing, along with, you know, what that individual's preferences are when it comes to treatment and what they're looking for. Uh, what then happens is a clinician uh, will then review that questionnaire. An appointment is then set up through a, a, a telephone appointment, that is and it's then discussed. Uh, so, you know, the clinician will then give their advice uh, based on, you know, the, uh, the the questionnaire. They'll probably ask some further questions, perhaps for clarification. But most importantly, it's about, you know, trying to understand more about that patient and what it is that they're looking for, uh, you know, in terms of treatment and coming up with like a shared management plan, if you will. The healthcare picture has become a, become a very complicated one. It's complicated for people and professionals who work in the industry. It's also proven to be quite difficult for people to get access to different forms of care. How do you think this model might be a template that could be used moving forward to address some of the broader concerns in healthcare in Canada right now? Yeah, that's a that's a good question. So I think ultimately, you know, with COVID, we saw, you know, ultimately a fast track to, to virtual care services. And I think that to an extent has opened the door to a lot of Canadians to be able to access their physician in a much easier manner in a more prompt manner. Um, and I think, you know, what we're what we're, we're uh, kind of doing here at Rocky, this is kind of like a, a, a stepping stone for us, if you will, right? So we're con con uh, currently focusing on, you know, mental health, along with other uh, embarrassing issues. But we are looking to kind of expand the services more and more to, to meet, you know, uh, the demands for uh, things that are beyond just what's embarrassing. Um, you know, even your common day-to-day -day ailments, for example, uh, if you're struggling to, to, you know, access a physician, we're kind of looking to leverage basically technology along with access to a broader healthcare team, such as nurse practitioners that may be able to assist, uh, you know, with, uh, with common day-to-day -day ailments. 
What are the points of contact for someone who might be interested this morning? You, you may have perked a couple of eardrums here. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, myrocky.ca, uh, that would be the first port of contact. Um, and, uh, you know, once you get on there, everything is fairly straightforward. You'll, you'll find, you know, the tabs available on the top left hand corner. It'll say mental health. And uh, if they just simply click on there, uh, they'll be able to then begin the process and, uh, and get connected with the clinician. Dr. Mancarios, what a really interesting idea. Thank you for taking the time to talk about it today. All the best to you and your colleagues. Dave, thank you very much for having me. It's been a pleasure. That's Dr. George Mancarius. He is the Chief Medical Officer for Rocky Health. As mentioned, visit myrocky.ca, myrocky.ca for more information. In one minute, Laura Bain has the entertainment report. But first, LG is showing off some TVs at CES. Mike Dubusky flips on another edition of Tech Trends. The TV no longer has to dominate the room. The LG Signature OLED T is a 77-inch panel that's completely see-through. Digital Trends' Caleb Dennison. Folks don't necessarily want their TV looking like a big black rectangle in their room when it's not being watched. For when you actually want to watch TV. They've set up the device so that it rolls a black film up behind the transparent display, and as soon as they do that, it looks just like a regular OLED TV. It's the latest in a line of TVs that do away with the tech aesthetic. Samsung's The Frame is designed to look like a painting when it's turned off. LG, meanwhile, plans to put the OLED T on sale before the end of the year, though no pricing has been announced. But I do think it will have a fairly shocking sticker price. With Tech Trends, I'm Mike Dubusky, ABC News. Thank you very much, Mike. I wonder what constitutes a shocking sticker price anymore in the world that you live in. Let's turn to the world of entertainment. Maybe you want to watch DJ Demare's new show one more time on a 77-inch TV. It debuted on AMI-tv this week, and Laura Bain has some thoughts on the show. Hello again, Laura. Yeah, hi, Dave. Um, yeah, this show caught my attention. And um, as you mentioned, it airs on AMI-TV on Tuesdays at 9 p.m. Eastern. I streamed it on C CBC Gem, where uh, it's also available. So I know you've talked about this show a little bit this week. It's a workplace comedy set in a used sporting goods store. DJ Demare plays DJ, so same name. <laughs> uh, the store is manager with a cast of oddball employees. And I think we have a clip to play. Yeah, we sure do. In the trailer a DJ is talking with a couple colleagues and customers in the sports store which is named one more time let's roll the clip our customers shop here because they know we care ma'am I got what you need I'll scream you will take what I give you this one's good DJ we understand them is there sound coming up we listen I'm sorry what 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 what, what? shots fired <laughs> you know I don't know sign language what? You heard of hearing too? Was your worst fear also not, not hearing, hearing the, the fire, fire alarm and your skin melting down to the skeleton? <laughs> well, this is terrific. So, Laura, you had a chance to uh, take in the first episode. What'd you think? 
funny stuff. Uh, I enjoyed it. I felt like I'm not 100% hooked yet, but I'm definitely going to give episode two a chance. I really like um, like awkward workplace comedies, uh, and I feel like this kind of adds the awkwardness of disability to that or the potential awkwardness that can come with disability in a really funny way. Um, that trailer there had a little bit of, I think, what was my favorite kind of moment in the first episode, which is where like one of the an employee tries to is very enthusiastic about their allyship, let's say, and like learn sign language. Of course, making the assumption that DJ uses sign language, which he doesn't. So, um, yeah, I felt like it just did a really good job of kind of highlighting sometimes the funniness that comes with disability without being distasteful. Um, I watched it, as I mentioned, on Gem, and I couldn't get the audio description to work. I think it wasn't available on the app, which is a little disappointing. So watching it on AMI might be a better way for folks to check it out because there is some physical comedy in there, which we heard in that clip that I felt like I was missing out on a little bit. Yeah, so AMI-TV as well as AMIplus.ca uh, should be able to take care of a couple of uh, those needs on that front. Yeah. Uh, Laura, one of the things, uh, no, I, I started watching yesterday and then a pot boiled over on my stove and it kind of threw me for a loop and I actually had to turn it off and I got distracted and then I fell asleep early. This is the life of Dave Brown. Nobody cares about my autobiography. But from what I've seen in terms of the trailers and a couple of clips, it, it, it seems to have hit a tone here and mm -hmm. that's not easy for a comedy to do early in its run. Oftentimes it takes comedies five, six episodes to get going, sometimes more than a season, but it's a real testament to DJ. DJ's a really funny guy, and it looks like he's been able to figure out how to get some of that those disability jokes in early, set a tempo, set a tone, and then sort of move where he wants to move from there. I'm really eager to finish the first episode, and I'm really eager to see what else is on offer here. Oh, yeah, for sure. And I think that, you know, perhaps that just speaks to like the importance of having disabled people writing our own stories and acting in our own stories. Uh, this is actually the first Canadian TV series uh, to have a lead actor who is uh, hard of hearing in it. So, um, yeah, I, you know, I know that I'm like 100% more likely to tune in when I know that, when I know that there's um, kind of an authentic disability angle and maybe a lead character who has a disability. And I think it's because I'm just so like I want to be in on the conversation obviously and I want to support the content but I think I'm also really eager to see my experiences reflected in a show which I didn't for the most most of my like tv watching life and stuff that's relatable I mean I don't have um you know hearing loss but I think there's a lot of relatability in that kind of experience but what about yourself does it make you more likely to tune in if you know that there's uh a lead actor or a writer on the show that has a disability? I think the actor would definitely be something that matters for me. I, when it really comes down to it, I, I wanna see that true representation on screen. I think what makes this one really important though, Laura, is the notion of comedy, because I think there have been plenty of uh, stories told with the disability lens that is uh, very boo-hoo or very concerning or, you know, very sad or look at this life or here's pathos. I think there's something to be said when it's in the comedy world, because I think that's where you can really disarm people. I, actually, I wonder if that's uh, ableist language that I just used. I wonder if that's a situation <laughs> where you can yeah. kind of break down somebody's barriers by utilizing comedy in a way that's a little less in your face and might even create a broader based interest.
I think so. And actually what's coming to mind for me right now is that uh, Netflix show special. And I'm trying to remember the actor writer's name on that. I know his first name was Ryan, but that kind of also hit that comedy beat. Uh, well, I think bringing in sort of people and, and uh, you know, I don't want to say learning because learning sounds like you're yeah, getting yeah, your yeah. vegetables. That's not what I'm <laughs> meaning, but just maybe normal. I think normalizing, normalizing is actually yeah. a better word, like normalizing through comedy. You uh, know, it's, like, people in. it's like camouflaging the vegetables. It's like, it's like grinding up the cauliflower and putting it in your mac and cheese. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> There's a lesson to be learned there. Okay, Laura, one last thing on the way out the door here. Uh, not sure where you stand on the 2004 film Mean Girls, but it is mm -hmm. being rebooted in musical form out in theaters yeah. today. What are the odds you'd head down to the theater to go see the reboot of Mean Girls 20 years later? I Yeah, for sure. I mean, I like musicals. I did like the movie Mean Girls. So yeah, I would say that if I was going to the movies this weekend, that would probably yeah. be a top contender. What about for yourself? I loved the 2004 movie. I loved Mean Girls. I thought it was so deeply funny. Uh, I found out this is a musical. And like that kind of upsets me because I don't really feel like mm -hmm. going to see a musical. What's kind of odd is it wasn't explicitly marketed as a musical until very recently. So I thought that was kind of strange. Like, why aren't you telling me this is a musical? Yeah, I feel like there's been a lot of musicals out lately, right? I mean, we have the color purple right now, but I think uh, Barbie also was a musical, wouldn't it, you say? It, it had it had some musical elements to it. There's no doubt about that. Yeah, I, I think musicals are are... Well, I don't want to say having a moment because I don't mean to say that it's something that's going to go away, but they seem to be quite popular right now. Hamilton in the Heights. They, they made that in the Heights movie a couple summers ago that ended up mm -hmm. doing fairly well at the box office. Apparently, even that Willy Wonka reboot was a, a musical oh, yes, as of well. Course. Yeah. Um, yeah. That said, uh, once again, not marketed as a musical, which seems strange. It's like you're trying to trick people into going to see musicals who don't want to see musicals rather than just advertising to people who like musicals. Yeah, maybe. And I think I forgot about Wonka. I mean, I love Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, but I think like the last remake of Wonka was just so traumatizing for me that I've <laughs> sort of, uh, I, I probably will see the latest Wonka, but haven't yet. Yeah, in the pro wrestling world, they call that killing the town. The last Wonka movie killed the town and killed the brand and you got to move on. Hey, Laura, speaking of moving on, I got to go. Have a great day. Have a great weekend. Thanks, Dave. You too. That's Laura Bain with the Entertainment Report. Coming up after the break, Alex Smythe is uh, searching for housing, trying to find a rental place, and apparently it's not uh, going so well. So we'll just open up the door and let Alex rant and vent for 10 minutes, and then uh, that'll be that. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv, Nazreen Abdel-Majid and Ramya Amuth are standing by. Alex Smythe, you are going through the unenviable task of looking for a place to rent in Southern Ontario. Yeah, Dave, it's, uh, you know, it's a challenge. I haven't been in the uh, position that I've been looking for a rental place since the, the pandemic. You know, I had my own place in Toronto, then I moved home, and now I'm looking for a place of my own again. 
Needless to say, it's been tough, borderline frustrating. You know, you're looking online, there's all these different platforms to use, some are better than others, and then you start looking at the units themselves. Okay, some seem too good to be true, some seem pretty good, and then you realize you dig a bit deeper. Oh no, it is too good to be true. So needless to say, uh, when it comes to all these different factors like, you know, location, quality of the appliances, you know, the uh, the the price, those are easy things to kind of figure out. But for something price. like- Yeah, price, yeah, exactly. price is you know, a big one. It's, it's like, price is a big one. Oh gosh, yeah. this is terrible. I'm gonna be house broke. Exactly, but you, you can kind of figure those things out. But as part of my role here, I work from home for the most part. I need a soundproof space. I don't know what that's going to be like until I go into the in in investigate space, and I may not even know if that's what it sounds like on a day to day. Maybe if there's other tenants in a building or in a house, maybe they're not even home. So it's hard to really gauge truly what that experience is going to be like. So needless to say. I'm kind of in this kind of frustrating pattern. I, I want to get everyone else's experience of what they went through uh, going through renting or buying and where they currently are at. So that's why I want to bring this topic to the round table. So Alex, why don't we go in order of most recent moves? And that's Nazreen Abdel-Majid well. when her and her hubby moved in together. Yeah, so um, it was frustrating. I understand totally, Alex, where you're coming from. There was so many factors to look into, obviously, price being number one. Um, I We didn't really care about space-wise, like how big the apartment was, but more of location. Is it going to be accessible for me to catch the train, catch the bus, because I don't drive. So there is that factor to consider. Um, are there stores around us that is also close by that we can just run and grab something? Um, but I really wanna, I'm really interested to see where you guys are co coming from based on accessibility, because I do have some points to bring up. Oh, okay, okay, I guess, I guess we're just gonna do this utterly earnestly, but let's bring in Ramya here. Ramya, you have uh, confessed that you've moved many times, probably the most yeah. of the three of us, probably more than the three of us combined in terms of mm -hmm. total moves. So how are you at this process? You're, you're a pro by now. Well, a little bit, but also I've gotten less picky, I'd say, over the years. It used to be really bad. Like, I need to uh, be right in front of a subway station. Like, I lived in the Don Mills and Shepherd area, for people who know that area, and uh, around Fairview Mall. And I was adamant. I was like, I don't even want to take a bus anymore, so I'm going to have to sit right in front of the subway station or have, you know, access to everything and anything at walking distance from me. It was pretty brutal. Um but yeah, like in terms of affordability, Dave, the currently where I live, I didn't even find this place using a uh, a rental website or anything like that. It was totally word of mouth because it wasn't necessarily listed. Like you couldn't go find it on these uh, sites, and it was friends who, when I knew when they knew I was moving, f helped me find this place, and I'm very happy with it because of all the amenities just around me, um, access to bus service and things like that. But I'd say opposite to you, Nisreen, I really wanted to live somewhere where I felt like I had space um, to, to, you know, not feel like I'm paying an insane amount of rent yeah. for a shoebox. And that I was really agree cool. with you. I agree with yeah. you. And especially in Mississauga, where you feel like the kitchen is inside the living room area, 
that I, I agree with you inside the bedroom <laughs> yeah. where the bedroom is a closet and it doesn't yeah. fit a queen size bed yeah i oh, i see oof. what you're saying yes yeah, space yeah. is yeah important. it was honestly to accommodate my queen size bed that's yeah. why i'm I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm a goldfish so yeah whatever whatever size of apartment you give me i will expand the size of that apartment <laughs> with square footage comes more inches on uh, dave brown uh alex i had a miserable experience last time i moved so i can offer you no advice other than um you know don't don't have a complete and total nervous breakdown like as you go through the process uh, yeah. uh, that's the advice i can give you and that's not advice at all uh okay things you're looking for nazreen I'll, I'll give you the room to be super earnest and talk about accessibility in a moment here but like let's be clear guys in sweet laundry dishwasher come on oh, these, these are must-haves yes. alex oh yeah so it. so we we have uh, me and my partner we've already been like having these discussions which one is takes the priority is it the dishwasher or the in-suite laundry for me it has to be the in-suite laundry the yep. dishwasher fine i'll suffer through washing Ugh. by hand every single night i don't like it but the last thing i want to do is have to go down to a basement or go to a laundromat mm -hmm. to do my laundry i'm lazy when i do laundry so i i tend to leave it for a little bit i don't want to have to be worried that someone's going to go through my clothes so in sweet laundry is definitely a must yeah there's a load a lot there was a load in the dryer as i left the house this morning so you know maybe the apartment built down burnt down maybe it didn't who knows who knows you never know <laughs> we live our world and uh, we live in a world of mystery uh ramya uh, sorry nazreen i heard a, a big affirmation when i said dishwasher and mm -hmm. sweet laundry big time affirmation and sweet laundry was a big yes that was very important to me when i was looking through um my sister lives in a building where she shares the laundry room downstairs and there's so many people that leave it dirty they don't clean up after themselves so i just really wanted an in sweet laundry service Dishwasher was also important. I get lazy, just throw it in the dishwasher, uh -huh. even though it's two people, I don't care. Um, there was also a den because working from home, that space is very important. Yeah. True, so yeah. I was looking for that space. So yeah. space, so we're coming back to space here. Uh, yes, Ramya, you, you made a sound. <laughs> uh, was it the in-suite laundry, the dishwasher that got you upset? Man, I really wish in-suite laundry, like I lived, the last time I had laundry at my fingertips was when I lived with my mom eight, 12 years ago. So I'm so missing in-suite laundry, Dave, and I, don't like doing laundry at all. Currently, I have like a, a bag of whites that's just been there forever. That's like half my wardrobe because I refuse to do it because I'm like, are you serious? I have to do another load of laundry. Uh, I, don't, I really wish, man. Like, I'm so jealous of you guys talking about your in-suite laundry. Like, it's just normal. So, Alex, I think what Rummy is recommending is a place with butler service as well. So yeah. Someone can do the laundry yeah. for you. Forget in-suite laundry. Give me in-suite butler. There this we go. Yeah, not it's like that just a bad. hotel. <laughs> just just find a hotel or like a cruise ship that you can pay for that extra service, right? There we go. <laughs> yeah, just go live in some sweet hotel. You know what? Let's yeah. leave let's leave the accessibility conversation out here. There's, there's been a lot of accessibility talk already today. Let's just say goodbye and have a nice weekend. Nazreen, take care. Have a nice weekend. Thank you, you too. Alex, you enjoy your weekend as well. Ramya, before I say goodbye to you, what's coming up at Kel on Kelly and Ramya today at 2 p.m. Eastern time? Okay, well, we're talking to gardener Susan Kearney, and she's telling us about a couple different things, including what she considers to be January flowers. I think there are official January flowers, but also uh, stuff that she got over the holiday break, including a mushroom growing kit. Mm. She's been kind of teasing kind about of this all of last year. Uh, just the uh, normal edible okay. kind. Culinary? Wow, they're all, well, they're all edible.
<laughs> yeah, I was gonna say, I need to choose my words carefully, culinary. <laughs> uh, yeah. And uh, yeah, and then we're also talking a lot of CES, of course, Consumer Electronics Show with John Beeler. He didn't get to go, but he's been paying attention to a lot of the interesting things, including a four-in-one uh, at-home health check-in device that's recently come out. So yeah, looking forward to that. Chat. Next week, I'll be playing a game with a couple of different columnists called Useful or Useless with uh, various mm. tech items uh, unveiled at CES. So, uh, nice. so keep that one on the radar. I'd like to play some games here on Now with Dave Brown. Ramya, you have yourself a lovely day, a lovely afternoon, a lovely weekend, and talk to you on Monday. Thank you. All right, talk to you then. That is Ramya Amuthan. You can find Kelly and Ramya 2 p.m. Eastern Time on AMI. Coming up next, the 2024 shortlist for Canada Reads is out. Karen McKay gives you the scoop and some insight on a couple of the nominees. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Turning to the world of literature, Canada Reads is back. The shortlist for the 2024 contenders came out yesterday. Karen McKay has some insight on these contenders. Karen is the communications manager at the Centre for Equitable Library Access. Hey, good morning, Karen. Nice to chat with you today. Good morning. Happy Friday. Karen, you're going to do a bit of a dive into a few of these uh, titles that made the short list. But first and foremost, what do you think makes Canada Reads such a staple in the Canadian literary world? I think it's partly because it's participatory in nature. Folks can watch or listen to the debates on a variety of different platforms. Uh, libraries often pick this up and schools often pick this up and do their own sort of reading challenges in in concert with the ones with Canada Reads. So uh, you'll see lots of book clubs and, and um, other sorts of reading opportunities come up. And, and so people can talk about it with their own circle, but also we get to have a bit of a national conversation. And the books they pick are often very diverse. And so it's an interesting way to sort of get at the you know, at what makes Canada tick, I think. So I I love the whole idea of it. Yeah, I like that people champion the title, right? That typically the way the debates work is somebody who's very, very smart <laughs> and very, very well-read ends up really standing for their particular title, for their particular nomination, and it becomes a pretty compelling operation. When are the debates taking place? They're taking place March 4th to 7th. So you've got, what, six weeks, eight weeks to read these books if you want to read them all before the debates launch. Right on. Okay, let's talk about some of the titles. Let, let's see if you can give the primer and people can make their own power rankings when they decide they're going to read each of these. You've mentioned one of these in the past, Bad Cree by Jessica Johns. If there's time towards the end of the segment, we can backtrack to it, but you've profiled that one a few times. But there's a few new ones here that you haven't talked about before. Shut Up, You're Pretty, stories by Taya Mutanji. Yeah, so this one actually has had a lot of buzz before. It was on the 2019 Rogers Trust Fiction Prize shortlist, and it won the 2020 Edmund uh, White Award for debut fiction. 
So, uh, and also CBC named Muchani a uh, writer to watch in 2019. So this is a bit of an older book. It's published, what, four or five years ago now? Muchani is a, a Congolese Canadian, and she's also the editor of Feelways, a Scarborough anthology, and she lives in Toronto. So this book uh, was actually the first to be published under the imprint from uh, Vivek Shera. So really an interesting book all around. It's a collection of short fiction, and it tells the stories of a young woman named Loli and her experiences coming of age in the 21st century in, in Scarborough. So we get to watch her as she sees someone decide to shave their head in an abortion clinic, as she bonds with her mother over fish, of all things, and she com contemplates her Congolese traditions at a wedding. Uh, when she was interviewed about this book, she said that she first started writing these stories independently, and then she realized that she was writing the same character for the protagonist. So she used that as sort of a way to, to thread all these stories together and to show that this is one woman's experience um, and that she was really careful to say that this is not... Um, uh, it's not every woman's experience. It's just the experience of this one person. Um, she's quite passionate about making sure that uh, Black voices, immigrant voices are heard. And so she didn't want to sort of create this impression that she was speaking for everyone. So she views Loli as the central character in all of these stories to talk about um, all of the experiences that one woman might have. Uh, author Catherine uh, Herndez reviewed this book, and she said that it asks us to witness the journey of a girl into womanhood, holding her in arms, uh, the fragile understandings of femininity as a commodity, as a caretaker, and as a storyteller. And, I mean, I love Catherine Hernandez. She raved about this book. So I think it's a very interesting one for them to have added to the collection this year, and I'm excited to see how it gets defended. Excellent. Okay, another one here on the radar, The Future by Susan O'Ree by uh, Catherine LaRue. Yeah, so this is a really interesting book. It's going to be championed by author Heather O'Neill, who herself won um, her book Lullabies for Little Criminals, won Canada Reads in 27. So this is a translated work, and I don't know whether Canada Reads has featured a translated work before. It's a very interesting story. Uh, so the author is Catherine LaRue, and she uh, worked with Susan Arai to, to translate it from French into English. Um, this book has already won the Jacques Broussard Award for Speculative Fiction. So it's got a really interesting premise. It's set in an alternate history of Detroit, where the French never surrendered to the U.S., and its residents live with poverty now, with pollution and racism. The story sort of centers on a grieving grandmother whose name is Gloria, and she's moved to the city to her daughter's house. Her daughter was found murdered and drowned in her own bathtub. And Judith's uh, daughters, Kath Cassandra rather, and Matilda, they're 15 and 12, and they've disappeared. So Gloria, the grandmother, comes to get to know the neighbors and to start to look for her grandchildren. And she's getting nowhere with the police. So she finally decides to explore a local park called Park Rouge, which is basically a dense, impenetrable forest that's rumored to be inhabited by a bunch of uh, feral children. And in this case, the rumors are true. There's this group of kids in, living in this forest. Most of them are orphans, and they're looking out for each other. And they've created this really rigid set of rules and hierarchies. Uh, and one of the caretakers is a large pit bull named Priscilla. So the book is told through the views of all of these, well, not all of them, but many of these different characters. So you get to see sort of how the experiences of, of the children and the grandmother and the dog all come together to tell this story. Heather O'Neill said it's almost like a magical response to the Lord of the Flies book. You get to meet these fer uh, feral murderous children 
whose meditations on life are so gorgeous and absurd and perverse that they're poetry. And this wild group of children show us a model for a new society where everyone's dream of life is equally important. So I think this is a really interesting um, premise for a book. I'm excited to read it. I haven't read it yet, uh, but it's it's reviewed to be very funny, to have a number of really entertaining scenes. In, in one scene, there's um, bedroom stories, and they're kind of a mashup of multiple fairy tales, and the children perform them. And so I just think it's it, it could be a very interesting, somewhat startling, but also maybe a bit whimsical book, and I'm looking forward to reading this one. Karen, I think this one is familiar to me as well. Denison Avenue by Christina Wong. I want to say maybe you've talked about this one before. I don't know that I have, but it is getting a lot of buzz. It's going to be um, defended by Nahid Nenshi, the former Calgary mayor. And this is um, an interesting book. It is... Um, it's not a graphic novel, but there's images that come into the book that are really important um, to the to the book. And so we've had our um, accessibility team review it, and we've had a couple staff review it. And the images have both short descriptions and um, an alternative longer description. So if you just want to get the gist of what the image is, you can just read the short description in alt text. Uh, or you can delve into it a little bit longer. There's a couple of sort of handwritten letters in the book, and you can click in to get the full alt text of the letter, or you can just get a summary. So I think that they've been careful about uh, setting up the alt text to make it accessible in a couple of different ways. So this story is set in Toronto's Chinatown and Kensington Market, and it follows an elderly Wu Chu Sum who's living in the gentrified Chinatown, and she begins to collect bottles after the sudden loss of her husband as a way to sort of fill her day. She walks the streets and picks up bottles and cans, and she's trying to keep her grief and her loneliness at bay. So she meets a number of new friends as she walks around the, the city. She also confronts racism and classism, and she's learning to sort of build a new life as a widow. The, the story really is a meditation on loss and gentrification and aging and the barriers for Chinese Canadians, um, especially seniors in a big city. It's beautifully com uh, combined with some visual art. So uh, I'm hoping that, that AMI listeners can really get what they, they need from this book. I think it's a beautiful um, intermelding of the two art forms, but it's certainly something that you could read without the, the image descriptions as well. So Christina, uh, sorry, Christina Wong is a Toronto writer. She's a playwright. She's a multidisciplinary uh, artist, and she also works in sound installation and audio documentary. So she's bringing all of her creative forces into this book. And one more title to talk about here, Meet Me at the Lake by Carly Fortune. So we have talked about this one before. Uh, it was a great summer read. Lots of buzz about this book. It follows 32-year-old Fern uh, Bookbrinks, who she's she can't stop thinking about this perfect day she spent in her 20s with a man named Will Baxter. And they promised to meet up a year later, but Will never showed up. And then Fern ends up moving to her mother's Muskoka resort and managing it. And it's something that she never thought she would do. Uh, she puts a call out for help. Um, something happens in the novel and she needs some help. And she's shocked when Will shows up at her door and he says that he wants to stay. Uh, Fern knows that Will has a secret, but she's not sure if she's ready to hear it all these years later. So Carly Fortune is a Toronto-based journalist. She's worked as an editor. This is her second book. Uh, her debut was Every Summer After. I think we might have talked about that one on the show as well. This is a... Um, it delves into some deep themes, but it's also a really lovely sort of summer read about life at the lake. And, and if you want to escape the winter uh, and be in Muskoka, even just virtually, this would be a great read. 
Karen, there's about a minute left here, so why don't you take a second to talk about Bad Cree? Uh, that, that's a book that you've talked about before. It's really been part of the cultural zeitgeist for the better part of a couple of years now. So uh, Bad Cree, why, why is that one worth a read as well? So Jessica Johns, who's the author, is um, a queer member of the Sucker Cree First Nation, and she's written this sort of suspense book. Uh, it's about a young woman named Mackenzie who's having these horrible nightmares and that they're uh, forcing her to confront the death of her sister and the legacy of her family. Um, these dreams sort of start to take over in her waking hours. So a murder of crows stalks her. She wakes up dreaming, uh, wakes up from a dream of drowning by throwing up water, and she's getting threatening text messages from someone who's claiming to be her sitter, sister rather. So she travels north to Alberta to her family, and they're all reeling as well from similar issues. Uh, and so they together they sort of take on what happened at the lake and what did it have to do with Sabrina's death. Uh, and the idea behind the title is that only a bad Cree would put family at risk, but Mackenzie really needs to understand what's happening in her life. Uh, so this is a very interesting book, lots of buzz, and I, I'm not surprised it made this list. Hey, Karen, thank you for all the work that you and your colleagues are doing. What an interesting list and what an interesting opportunity for folks to engage with some of this great Canadian literature. Have a lovely weekend. Talk to you in a couple weeks. Thanks so much. That is Karen McKay. Karen is the Communications Manager at the Centre for Equitable Library Access. You can follow Sela on X at Sela Library, at Sela Library. That's all the time there is for the show today. That's all the time there is for the show this week. Don't worry, things kick off again Monday morning at 9 a.m. Eastern time. You'll catch up with some of the regulars like Marco Pasqua and Michelle McQuig. Sean Priest is stopping by. It's going to be a fantastic time hanging out with some of your friends on a Monday. Until then, I'm Dave Brown reminding you to play safe, play fair, but don't forget to have some fun. Like we do every single Friday, we give thanks and major gratitude to the people who work their tails off to put this show together on the day-to-day -day in the control room, behind the scenes, and on the air. So like I do every Friday, let's say it together. Roll those credits, gang. Assistant Kingsley Juco, DB producer Mark Phoenix, director Anastasia Spalding Stenhouse, control room operators Daniel Panamondo, Eliza Rocco, Parker Oxtoby, Caitlin Robinson, operations coordinator Jordan Mulgrave, manager of operations Kyle Harper, manager of live productions Paula Deneen, director of content development Kara Nye, vice president of programming John Melville, president and CEO David Arrington. Give us your feedback. 1-866-509. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. The Walrus is Canada's conversation, and you're invited to take part. 
Download AMI's Voices of the Walrus, where professional narrators read selected articles from the magazine. Available wherever you download your AMI podcasts.